Romans 7, 13 through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what, now if I do, what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Welcome uh, to the Panadora. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I've noticed that no one has decided to sit in drippy bucket zone here in the front. That was a wise decision. You may well notice that some drips are coming down from our skylight this morning. All the better. Extra church Christian points for being here on this cold, snowy morning. Um, We are in a few days, three days actually, as Confessor mentioned, uh, celebrating Ash Wednesday here at the church. We'll be here on Wednesday at 7 p.m. observing that great day. It, of course, marks the beginning of the Lenten season, which is the 40-day period of preparation leading us into Easter. And these observances, Ash Wednesday and Lent, these are not joyous observances in the way that you would typically count joy. These are rather somber observances, actually. In many traditions, Ash Wednesday, which has been marked for about a millennium now, physical ashes are employed and actually marked on the head of the believers on that Day, uh, Whether you're in a tradition that uses ashes or not, Ash Wednesday is accompanied with texts that speak to repentance and brokenheartedness. It's a time of remembering that we are dust. And it begs the question, what gives? Why devote all of this attention to things that are so bleak? Uh, that's actually a question that we get quite a bit around here at the Painted Door. Why devote so much attention to things that are so bleak? If you have been here for any time, you may have noticed that our tone tends to be a bit somber at times. And while I think it's generally true that we as a church would do well to continue learning how it is that we rejoice in the Christian faith, it so happens that this time of year, with Ash Wednesday and Lent, the tone of our church is 
holy fitting. We're actually getting it right at least one season of the year. Uh, And so again, it begs the question, why all of this devotion? Why all of this focus on suffering? Why all of this focus on things that are bleak? Why all of this focus on ashes, death, what have you? And the answer, of course, is because suffering and death are everywhere. Suffering and death surround us. Everywhere you look in this world, there is suffering and death. And we spend an enormous amount of energy and ingenuity as people living in this world seeking to deny that reality. An enormous amount of energy and ingenuity finding ways that we can reduce suffering, avoid suffering, or pretend that death is just a distant idea, delay our death as long as possible, not notice it that it is approaching for all of us. We come up with all kinds of clever ways. And many of those things, of course, are good. We're very thankful, of course, for modern medicine and its ability to treat those who are sick or ailing in some way. We're thankful for farming technologies, for example, that would greatly reduce global starvation or global hunger. There's much to be commended in our attempt to push back suffering or to delay death. But our obsession with that our obsession with avoiding suffering, our obsession with pushing death to the margins, finding ways that we don't have to think about it or its implications, that obsession is quite destructive. Because what that obsession winds up doing is convincing us that there is nothing worse than suffering or death. We spend so much time fighting it that we convince ourselves that there's nothing worse than it. Nothing worse than suffering or death, and that's patently false. There is certainly something worse than suffering or death, and that is false living. That's the forfeiture of the human soul. That's the emptiness that comes when we anesthetize ourselves. The emptiness that comes when we convince ourselves that everything is just always okay. When we deny the reality of suffering and death in our world, we just pretend that all is well. That's false living, and it's actually worse than suffering or death. Are any of you familiar with that place? Familiar with that place of talking yourself into everything being okay? talking yourself into the all is well trope. We have a lot of tricks for doing that. That place is probably familiar to most of us if we're honest with ourselves. That's the place of someone who is, say, in a dead marriage but turns to pornography to manage or numb the pain, to pretend as though they are experiencing intimacy when in fact they are not. It's the place of someone who is in deep financial debt, but rather than amend their life in any way, keeps the shopping train right on rolling 
by applying for yet another credit card. It's the place of someone who has, over the course of their life, estranged themselves from numerous close friends and even family members, and yet now pretends that they are able to have relationships through an addiction to social media. Right? It's the empty liquor cabinet. It's the empty fridge. It's the Instagram filter. It's all of the things that we use to pretend that things are better than they are, to anesthetize ourselves to the plain reality that suffering and death are all around us. It's false living. And Ash Wednesday and the Lenten season would interrupt that fantasy, would interrupt that fiction and call us to acknowledge something about the world, call us to acknowledge the plight that we are actually in, the extent of the brokenness of this place, the extent of the brokenness of our own personhood. We'd rather avoid such hard things. We'd rather run. We'd rather move on. We'd rather just escape. But the Christian faith is not just one more of our tricks to avoid facing the harsh realities of this world. Some would want to use it that way. Perhaps all of us at some point would want to use it that way. That Christianity is just the latest, greatest way to pretend that all is well, to wrap myself in the warm blanket of religion. But that, in truth, is not what Christianity is. Christianity, in truth, tells it like it is. Christianity calls you to see what is the real situation that we find ourselves in. And the essence of Christianity truly is in facing that darkness. It's in facing that pain. And crucially, finding true salvation within it. The true salvation of Christianity is found amid the ashes. It's found in facing the dark things, in acknowledging the pain and brokenness of this world and of ourselves. On Ash Wednesday, we remember that we are dust. That is to say, we remember that we are dependent and needy creatures in need of salvation, that we're in need of new life. From dust we come, and to dust we will return. And then throughout the Lenten season, we fast as a means, as a practice, to highlight that dependence and need, to remind ourselves repeatedly, to be confronted repeatedly with the desperate plight that we find ourselves in, that everything is not okay, that all is not well. This is what Christianity is all about. The world would sell you a thousand suffering avoidance mechanisms. Christianity sells you nothing. Come and die with me, Jesus says, and you will find new life here in these ashes, in this cross. That was the discovery that the Apostle Paul made upon his conversion to Christianity. 
that the salvation of true faith, the salvation of Christian faith, required that he let go of his pretense, required that he let go of the fraud that he was, this person that had it all together, this person who was a somebody, this person for whom all was well, everything was okay, all of that began to be undone as the Apostle Paul came into the faith of Christianity. Some of you know his conversion story, no doubt, that he was knocked from a horse, literally knocked from his high horse and brought low, brought into the place of desperation, brought into the place of ashes, and he was knocked from a place of great high standing. Paul was a VIP in the ancient world, a VIP in his community. He was respected. He had privilege and status, and all of that began to be taken away. He began to give up on all of that as a cover for his faults and his needs, and he began to face the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of his own person. That's what the latter half of Romans chapter 7 is about. Okay, we've been looking at this great letter of Romans from the Apostle Paul over the course of this new year now. We've been looking closely at it. And Paul has been writing there. We've seen him commenting about this idea of God's law and that God's law is a mechanism or means by which the Christian faith exposes us, shows us the bleak reality of our flesh, our own personhood, our own independent living, our own false living. The law gives us the news. It tells it to us like it is. The Apostle Paul has had this experience with the law as he's come into the Christian faith. He's been exposed because it's God's standard of right living. And as you match your life up against it, you quickly begin to see that everything is not okay. All is not well. There is much in me that is broken, much in me that needs redeeming. The law, in essence, tells us that there will be no more pretending. And so the Apostle Paul, here in the latter half of Romans chapter 7, begins to speak about that expose in writing about the law, starting in verse 13. He writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's talking about the law. Did the law, which is good, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin." Paul says, the law of God is good, but it exposes that I am not good. Right, here's Paul, the greatest evangelist and church planter in all of church history, and yet the Christian faith is telling it to him straight. He's sinful beyond measure, he says. He's sold under sin. That is, Paul says, I am owned by sin. I cannot break free from its grasp. It has a hold of me. I'm stuck here. 
This is something that all of us probably often pay lip service to. But few of us even rarely acknowledge it fully. All of us would admit that we're not perfect, presumably. All of us would say things like, nobody's perfect. I have my faults. But we tend to do that only in the abstract, or as long as that admission remains abstract. What about when it becomes particular? What about when it becomes specific? What about when someone who knows you well, a close friend perhaps, points out some specific way that you have failed them? What about when your spouse or your significant other calls you out for some dark thing that keeps recurring in your life? What happens in that moment for you? I can tell you what happens for me. Perhaps it's different for you, but the inner lawyer springs to life within me and begins to concoct elaborate defenses for why it is that I am doing what I am doing or being how I am being. And it so turns out, according to this gifted defense attorney within me, that I am perfectly justified for all of the actions that I have committed myself to. And who is this person pointing out my faults anyway? Have they looked in the mirror lately? Who are they to call me out for anything? I'm sure that's only me who has that internal defense attorney rise. You know what that is? That's our resistance to Ash Wednesday. That's our refusal to go into the ashes. Because who among us can? Who among us truly can acknowledge the darkness of our heart? Who is willing to cede that territory? to lay down your defenses, to have what someone else says of you turn out to be true, to fully acknowledge just how dark things have become internally for you. How can anyone fully acknowledge that? The honest answer is that we can't and we won't until and unless we begin to see that the good life is not found in resisting the ashes. As long as we believe that the good life, that the rich life, that real and true life is found in keeping our distance from the ashes, keeping our distance from dark things, keeping our distance from painful things, keeping our distance from those things that bring us low, as long as we believe that, we will not acknowledge the brokenness within our own soul. We have to come to see That true life, that true salvation only and always springs from the ashes. That this is in fact where the Christ, your Christ, my Christ, our Christ meets us. This is the only place he meets us. It's in the desperate depths of our own brokenness and folly. When our defenses are laid bare And we go into that dark and painful place. As long as we continue thinking that that's a place to be avoided, we just go on playing our tricks, keeping our defense attorney on retainer.
and becoming more and more subtle in the ways that we do it, more and more purposed in the ways that we do it. And we do everything to keep ourselves out of the ashes. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he begins to wrestle with this idea of moving into the ashes, this idea of meeting a Savior in the dark place, in the place of acknowledging his own brokenness. Verse 15 of chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. You can almost hear it in Paul's words, him beginning to lay down his defenses, beginning to acknowledge his own brokenness. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. There's that idea again. The law is exposing me. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I would do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul here is acknowledging there's nothing good in me. And in fact, everything that is in me, all of this stuff that I find so important to preserve and defend, actually none of it's worth holding on to. It's evil. None of it's good. It's all broken. He says, my flesh, that's the the broken person that keeps bringing ruin into this world, the brokenness that I was born with, the personhood that I was born with, that keeps conspiring to bring evil into the world. It's out of control, Paul is saying. It's as though there's no hope for it. He says, I can't reform it. I can't make it do what I know it should do. I can't change it. I can't fix it. I'm stuck here. This brokenness in me, there's no correcting it. It's irreparably damaged. But right in the middle of all of that admission, all of that acknowledgement of the deep brokenness in his person, Paul begins to use this very strange language regarding that broken personhood, regarding that sinful flesh. He says, we read it, it is no longer I who do it. It is no longer I who do it. Paul, at the same time, he's acknowledging this deep darkness in his own soul, in his own flesh. He is also saying, somehow that doesn't define me. It's not I who am doing it. He's acknowledging that it's in him, but it is no longer I who do it. Paul is divorcing himself from his sinful flesh. He's somehow making a distinction between his identity and this sinful flesh that is in him that's ruling over his life. He's saying, that's not me. It's my sinful flesh, but it's not me. 
What's he getting at? It sounds here as though Paul is saying that he has two identities. He has two identities at the same time. They seem to coexist within him. He has this identity of his flesh, which runs headlong into all manner of folly and sin, which is self-protective, defensive. But it also seems that he is speaking of another identity. He identifies something in him that wants to do right, something in him that desires goodness. And what is this other identity? Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It says, I have one identity, this identity that delights in the law of God, and that identity dwells in my inner being. There's something deep within me, something bubbling up within me, something rising up within me that would lead me into a new way of being, into a new way of living, into a whole new humanity. But then I have this other identity, this one that does evil. He says, and it dwells in my members. It dwells in my body. He says, these two identities are at war within me. It's like they're fighting over who gets to define me, fighting over who I am. Who's the real I? Who's the real Paul? I can tell you I know this war very well. I'm sure anyone who is here who is a Christian knows this war all too well these seemingly two distinct identities. It's important to recognize that this war within the believer, it's not a moral war. It's not a war between good choices and bad choices. It's a war between me defining myself or Christ defining me. It's a war between me hanging my hat on what I do, on what I've accomplished, on my independently homegrown identity, or casting myself onto the identity that Christ gives to me, that he lays over me, that he covers me with. And this war is between life and death. Because for Christ to define me, that old, tattered person has to die. That person that I have fought for for so long, that person that I have clutched after from my birth, that person that I have defended with every breath, that person that I have carefully crafted and worked on, that person that seems to matter so much to me, that person who gives me credit, that person from whom I've derived my value and my identity, 
That person who's given me a reason for life, it seems, a reason for being, I have to give it up. I have to stop pretending that I'm okay. I have to stop pretending that all is well and projecting that to the world. I have to fire the inner lawyer and lay down all my defenses. I have to be convicted, guilty, as charged. I have to let go of my claim to innocence. For Christ to define us, we have to go into the ashes. That's terrifying. Who would go there? Who wants to go there? I have to acknowledge that all my efforts to be somebody, to be okay, have amounted to nothing more than ashes. Everything I've done, just piling up ashes. All that I've tried to concoct for myself, it amounts to nothing except something that needs to die. That I'm a needy, broken sinner, caught in suffering and death of my own making. This is where Paul finds himself as he begins to walk into conversion, begins to come into the Christian faith. He's willing to give up on the fraud that he is. He writes this famously in Romans 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Hear this, your tattered old identity, the one that you have fought so hard and so long to retain, the one that you have put so much stock in, you can let it go. You don't need it. It's not where real and true life is found. And do not be afraid of this death because Christ meets us there. This is where he meets us. This is where your Christ meets you in the ashes of your old flesh's death. And he meets you with new life, his life. In him, you have a new I. You have a new identity to speak out of, a new way of being defined. And this new identity, it's more real than the old, false, tattered personhood that you've clutched after. It's more true. It's more real. It's who you truly are. Commenting on this passage of Scripture, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth writes, Jesus Christ is the new man, standing beyond all piety, beyond all human possibility. He is the man who has passed from death to life. He is what I am not. 
my existential I, that I which in God, in the freedom of God, I am. In this faith, in this Christian faith, we are no longer defined by what we have done or failed to do or the ashes of our folly. Jesus meets us in our death and he makes all things new in him. Let's pray. Father, help us. Lead us by the hand and by your spirit into Ash Wednesday, into the ashes that are all around us. Open our eyes to see and acknowledge what it is that we have made and to cast ourselves on you. Pray that for this church, that we would be people who let go of that tattered old identity and walk in newness of life together. Give us faith. Give us words for one another. Help us to shepherd each other into that place. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.